How's everyone doing? Good. My name's Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, hey, you know, this week I had a conversation with someone uh, this week, and it probably, you could probably relate. Um, most of us during the Advent season, during the Christmas time of year, uh, as, as followers of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus, we, we truly do want to lean in and go hard when it comes to our focus and our centering and our who we are in Christ and our meditation on the coming of King Jesus and his return and, and all of that. But the reality is, and because of the busyness of the season and the stresses and the people coming and the house needs to get clean and the cookies need to get baked and all that stuff, we tend to be more in the middle. More in the middle of the sense of, I want to do this. I want devotion time. I want to find my joy in Christ this season, but there's a lot of things competing for my attention and my affections. And when we had this conversation uh, this week, I, I couldn't help but to think of a, uh, I originally heard this on a podcast and then went and read the article, an article by Adam Grant that he wrote in the New York Times. He wrote this during the pandemic, but he found a word that I think speaks to where a lot of us might find ourselves during the Advent season. He says this, at first I didn't recognize the symptoms, and he's talking about now his experience of the pandemic. At first I didn't recognize the symptoms that we all had in common, and he's talking about his friends. He said friends mentioned that they were having trouble concentrating and for him, instead of bouncing out of bed at 6 a.m., he was lying there at 7, playing words with friends. Anyone else? He says this. It wasn't burnout. We still had energy. It wasn't depression. We didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless. It turns out there's a name for that. He says it's languishing. Languishing, he says, is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at life through a foggy windshield. How many of us during the Advent season feel like we're looking through the fog of busyness and distractions for our attention, knowing that on the outside is joy in Christ. It's who we want to be in Christ. It's the time we want to spend in, in his word and meditation on him. And yet we feel like we're just sort of languishing, like we're not depressed, not sad, but we're in the middle. I think a majority of us, if we're being honest today, live in that sort of middle ground of languishing. We know that God has redeemed us, forgiven us of our sins through Christ Jesus, has filled us with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit now dwells within us. We know that there is a, a joy available to those who are in Christ Jesus, and the Bible promises, but the reality is that we are stuck in this sort of languishing posture when the Bible calls us to more of a flourishing posture. Now, this can be for several reasons. I just mentioned one, but you know, for a lot of us, I talk to you guys and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's life in the Bay Area. Can I retire here? Anyone asking that question? For some of you, it's, it's a little more. It's, it's, am I going to find a house? Am I going to be able to pay the mortgage or the rent next week? 
Life is just busy, and it's hard. It's hard to feel like you're flourishing when you're overwhelmed. And it's, again, it's not that you're in depression or sadness mode. It's that you're languishing. You're in the middle. And what I want to talk today to you and to me about is, number one, is, is uh, real, true biblical joy. And this idea that God, what the, the life that God has set forth for you and for me and what he has done on our behalf and is what the Holy Spirit then pushes us towards is not so much a life of languishing and wishing I could spend more time with, with Christ and meditation in his word, but what he is calling us to is a life of flourishing. And so how do we get out of languishing and into flourishing? And I believe that is an understanding of what true joy is in the scriptures. Joy that has a proper view of God and salvation, joy that can actually take us out of the middle ground and into the flourishing life that God has for you and for me, a joy that is not dictated or determined by, about by experiences, but something more deeply rooted into the fiber of who you and I are as followers of Jesus. Now, when I say the word joy, I, I fear that a lot of us think through the lenses of life circumstances. Anyone else there? We view joy more through the lenses of our residence here and now and not enough through the, through the lenses of our inheritance. We think of joy more in the here and now through our residence and not enough through the eternal promises that God has given to you and to me and maybe a little less about our citizenship in heaven and more about the here and now and, and, who, and what I'm trying to accomplish. We tend to base our joy on how we are doing right now and not enough on our future inheritance. Now, this comes from experience. And what keeps you and me in the middle of space of languishing is focusing on making this life a pain-free life, a comfortable life, while not giving much thought to my inheritance in Christ. In other words, the crisis comes, the, the, the circumstance hits, the, the call happens, the email comes, and now what I'm saying is how can I get out of this rather than what God would have for you and for me is to not focus so much on how does this affect my resume now and far more have asking the question, well, who am I in Christ? Who am I in light of the cross? Who am I in light of the resurrection? And focusing more on our inheritance. I would say that there is nothing more that gives the devil more joy than a languishing life for the Christian. And this is not the plan of God for you and for me. And so what Psalm 8 does is it opens us up to an understanding to see that David, and it, it, just a little bit of background uh, real quick on David, on where he is in Psalm 8. He, Psalm 8 is written in the middle of four different psalms of lament. He's literally a man surrounded on all sides, being chased for his life by Saul, who is just at, at odds with him and, it, and as angry as angry can be, so angry that he wants to kill David. And we learned that, you know, a few months ago. And so David is literally surrounded on all sides by the enemy. His circumstances are not what you and I would 
say are good. And so we come to Psalm 8, surrounded by these psalms of lament from Psalm 3 and 7 and 9 and 13, and right smack in the middle is a celebration hymn, you could say, or a prayer. As if to remind us that the sun rises, the storm ends, and the pain is not eternal. Amid the dwelling darkness and solitude, change is inevitable. It's also a reminder for those in Psalm 8 and Psalm, that Psalm 9 is still coming. Where the sun will set and life will unfold unexpectedly. But what our passages today want us to see is that there is a lasting joy. There can be a joy that takes our pain into praise and change our lingering, our lingering uncertain circumstances into opportunities for worship. That God does see you, and he will not leave you. And that's where we find ourselves today. It's where, it's where David is. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm 8 again. And remember, David is not, he's writing this, he's not in a comfortable position. He's not in a stable position. He's on the run, surrounded on all sides. And then we come to this psalm, and it's like coming out of, especially when you think about the previous psalms, and then the psalms afterwards, it's, it's, it's almost like we're coming out of a tunnel and seeing the bright light for David. Because rather than dwelling on uh, his circumstances and the enemy, dwelling his, or difficult circumstances, David can write what is called in the Latin an inclusio. I hope I said that right. I got the accent right at least, right? You guys can go with me on that? And this inclusio, I love that. I like that. Okay. This inclusio is, what this means is, uh, it, it, uh, the biblical writers are very strategic in that it bookends uh, by uh, using the titles of God. If you'll notice in Psalm 1, verse 1, and then the very last verse in, in uh, Psalm uh, verse 9, it says this, Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And then as we'll get into today, we see that David recognizes his weaknesses. He recognizes who he is in light of who God is. But smack dab in, 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 on, on both sides, book ended, is a declaration of no, but this is who you are, God. And this is what I'm going to submit on onto it's a posture. It's a declaration of praise. Verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is the name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Notice, number one, that the Lord is the object of praise. Real quick, a lot of times our... What gets the, to be the object of our praise is what we're praying for. A lot of times, the object of our praise is the hope that the outcome will come the way I want it to. Rather than the object of, the pray, of our praise being the one and only sovereign living God over all things, come what may, I'm going to still bookend my life with Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Amen? David is joyfully regarding God as benevolent creator, sovereign, and sustainer of the world. 
Now, the two words for Lord here are not the same in Hebrew, and we saw this with Jake's sermon last week as well, so I won't take a ton of time. Uh, but the first name here, it, it means Yahweh. You'll see that in all caps. And again, it's, it's in, in English, this is our way of respecting the word Yahweh as the, the original writers respected the word Yahweh as well. So when you see that word in, and you see the word Lord the, uh, in all caps, you know that the, what, he, what, uh, what the translation is saying is Yahweh, which means Lord over his people. And then in the second one, it's, a, it's lowercase, and that word for Lord there means Adonai, meaning Lord in the sense of ruler, master, and king. So David's very strategic here, and maybe a sharper way of, of reading this, and really does set the tone for the rest of the psalm here, is this, O Yahweh, our king, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. It's like David is saying, first and foremost, recognizing the living God, but then recognizing too as Adonai that he is king over my circumstances. He's king of where I'm at right now. And so I'm submitting under his lordship. And we see this so so evidently in in verse 2. It says this. go, Go to verse 2. It says, out of the mouths of babies and infants... You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. David is is making a very profound statement here. The word strength in Hebrew is actually translated into praise. So in the Hebrew text, praise precisely captures the essence of of what it means to have strength in the Lord. The original psalm attributes the, psalm, the praise to the Lord, specifically to Yahweh. So who's the source of our strength? Yahweh. Yahweh. It's crucial to recognize that the source of our strength lies not in the act of praising, but in the object of our praise, which is the Lord. And so David is not just shouting out songs and random things. He is literally saying, I'm surrounded by all sides. I don't know what's, what's around the corner, but I know where my strength comes from. And, and his strength then turns into what we would say is praise to Yahweh. But notice who's doing the praising that, that David is writing about. What does it say? Babies and infants. The first thing that you and I see about joy today is that joy is found in weakness. Joy is found in weakness. This is an interesting dichotomy in the scriptures of strength and weakness. And in Nehemiah 8.10 is perfect for this. He says this, do not be grieved. You guys know this verse. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. This reference to babies and infants is to say that God defeats his enemies through weak people and weak children. And what is seen as a weakness is a strength in the kingdom of God. We know this in Matthew uh, chapter 20, Jesus referenced Psalm 8 uh, from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, commonly known as the Septuagint. 
Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, it reads this, from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you established a stronghold because of your adversaries to stop the enemy and the avenger. And then in the Septuagint version, it says, from the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. Out of the mouths of infants and babies, you have prepared strength or praise for yourself. A paraphrase translation like the Septuagint seeks to really give us an understanding of the essence of the passage based on an understanding of the original language. And so Jesus then quotes from it and, and, and unfolds God's plan in the temple that day in Matthew 20, and he acknowledges uh, the accuracy of it. And the verse then is better translated, prepared praise, which serves as a fitting interpretation for stronghold capable of stopping the enemy. If we define praise as the act of acknowledging God as the king and expressing one's dependence on him accordingly, then who are the infants in Matthew's gospel account? Yes. Matthew informs us that those who have recognized their need for God. What I love about this account in the gospels is who's, who's doing a lot of the crying out? The, the crying out of Jesus, son of David, it's the outcast. It's the outliers of society. It's the homeless. It's the poor. It's the person that's getting picked on at the playground. When Jesus appeared on the scene associating with the marginalized and the overlooked, very few influential individuals really identified with the promised Davidic king. However, it was clear that the outcast and the poor and the afflicted in Matthew 20 clearly identified with him when they said and exclaimed, son of David, have mercy on us. In other words, they're throwing out an SOS and saying, Jesus, rescue us. It's their posture of praise. Others would join in crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means please rescue us. These people made themselves like infants by recognizing their need and crying out to the only one who could truly meet those needs, King Jesus. What I want, what I want us to see is that ultimately God wins through weakness. That God does his very best work through human weakness. And this is a very poetic move for David. As, as he's writing this, he's comparing himself, you and me, with children and, and saying as God's people, we are helpless as nursing children and our inadequate singing and responses of pray or praise are used by him to put our enemies in their place. David is rehearsing what is most true in any circumstance, that God will establish his kingdom and defeat his enemies through the praises of our inadequacy and our weakness and dependency as, as people of God, worshiping God. This is how God comes and brings the kingdom to earth, is through weakness. Now, why is weakness preferred to strength in the Bible? Well, first of all, you've probably asked that question. I have too. And if you look at the Bible as, as a whole, in its entirety, you'll discover that weakness isn't necessarily equated 
to negativity. In fact, it's, 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 it's a very good thing. And so you think of Joshua 1.9 where it says, have I not commanded you? What does he say in that command in Joshua 1.9? The command is not to be weak and cowardly, but what does he say? To be strong and courageous. Some of you just need your coffee cup to remind you of that, right? To be strong and courageous. Throughout the Bible, we see men and women display various strengths. Abraham was rich. David was a king. Moses was mighty in power. Solomon was wise. Esther was beautiful. Uh, Samson was strong. Paul was intelligent. Of course, Jesus demonstrated great power and authority. When we hear about weakness, it's not a call for everyone to, uh, you know, automatically be unattractive and unattractive intelligent and oppressed and self-deprecating. It's because the emphasis on the particular kind of strength that the Bible is, is showing us. It's a spiritual posture. Joy in the Bible is a spiritual posture, not in posture, not in emotion. It's a strength for the joy of the Lord is our strength. It goes beyond physical attributes and skills set in circumstances. There's a, there's a self-emptying that takes place, a sense of lowliness, of meekness and disdain for our sinfulness and refusal to rely on ourselves. It's, it's when I come in face to face with the reality that I am sinful and I am in desperate need of a savior. And it's, that's the posture that remains. It's not I get saved and then oh, look at me. It's I'm saved, but I'm in need of grace. This is kind of off script, but we never graduate from grace. Amen. It's a humble recognition of our need for something greater than our abilities. It's a life of daily repentance because you know that given up to your own desires, you aren't choosing to live for holiness. Given to my own desires, what am I doing? What are you doing? I'm choosing sin. But God, by his mercy and grace, this is incredible news, has broken through the sinfulness and the hardness of our hearts and the sinfulness of man. And by his grace, he's broken through those and opened us up to open our eyes to, to be able to see his love and his mercy. And as we say yes to God, he fills us with his Holy Spirit and begins to change our desires. And it's because of God that we're saved. And it's because of God that we ever make it to eternity. Amen? It's a spiritual posture that recognizes that, that David is talking about. He says in verse 3 and 4, look, look back in our, in our passage. It says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David's question, what is man that you are mindful of him, is not a self-deprecating comment. The foundation for David of his joy is that God knows him. And there's no greater verse that tells you and me of this, new re of this reality um, than John 1, uh, 14, when Jesus says, in the, in, in, when it says that the word became flesh, when John said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It's Jesus breaking through humanity, the mess we've made. 
and saying, I love you. And David seems to be recognizing this. David sees that the fact that the God of creation, the God of the cosmos knows me intimately, the eternal omnipotent son of God who took on human nature and lived among humanity as the one who was both fully God and fully man at the same time in one person knows who I am. We race past that a lot, don't we? I do too. And let David's words remind us of the mercy that God has given us to say, I see you. I love you. The incarnation should drive us to gratitude. And that's the next key point is this, that gratitude is the key to joy. I love what uh, Charles Jefferson says, that gratitude is born in the hearts that take time to count up past mercies. The heart that takes up time to count up past mercies. Now, this week was, it was, it was, on one hand, it was a very exciting week. We had a massive outreach, um, Christmas miracles. We served a ton of families, and the Lord was so gracious and kind to us. And I, and I had this sermon. I was so excited to preach on joy this week, and it was just, it really pumped me up. But I haven't shared this a lot with a lot of people, but um, increasingly so, um, as, as I get older, um, I, uh, I, I've gotten these, not just headaches, but like these migraines that, that just take you out. You guys, some of you might know what I'm talking about. Those kind of migraines that just, you don't have brain power to do anything. And I had probably four days in a row of those. And as I'm praying, and let's be honest, I wasn't quite praying, praying. I was like complaining, praying. Does anyone complain and pray? Anyone with me on that? And I'm complaining and praying. I'm like, God, why would you do this? Like all this stuff. And Help me and heal me and break through and all that and all that kind of stuff. And as I was, I was, I was, because I was so, I was so out of it this day. And I was on, I think I was on our couch trying to take a nap. And I just remembered, as I'm thinking, I'm praying, I'm like God, you, you've got to do something because I don't know if I have the brain power to fully give all of it to this to your scriptures. And I take that very seriously. And. He brought to remembrance this time um, I, I just preached. And to be honest, I got off the state, uh, off the pulpit, and I'm like, God, you're going to have to do a miracle there. I don't know how they're going to hurt anything from you at all. So just cancel everything I said and make, just make sure they hear your word, and then we just get that going, go, going on. And um, I, get, I get down, and this lady comes up to me, and I've, I've told a few of you this story, and she, she says, um, Pastor Joe, I, I wrote a letter, my final letter, last night. And she was in tears. And she said, but the Lord spoke to me. I'm not going to go through with it. Life's worth living. So that's what she said. And it was this incredible reminder that it is not in my strength. It's not in my power. It's not what I can bring. And although God has gifted me in those ways, it is the word of God that brings this kind of 
change. And what that drove me to was to remember the past mercies of God, which said, God, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful. Gratitude is less about how I feel in the moment and more about counting up the past mercies of the triune God. David sees the intentionality of creation, that it's not just thrown together, and, and, but every detail is, is a very work and, of God's hand. And David uses, uses the word fingerprints. It's not just, you know, he's doing this, but he's putting his fingerprint on everything. And he's, David's saying, I see that. And David's capacity to find joy in the majesty of God reveals David's awareness that God is mindful of him and that God desires a relationship with him. What I love about this, this account is the word mindful in Hebrew not only describes how God is thinking about David in the form of a, of a relationship, but it also describes the kind of relationship that doesn't take into account the sins of David. It's a deeper relationship than oh, how you doing today? It's, let me hold you. It's an unconditional relationship that, that David is describing. And of course, David is, is aware of his weakness, saying, who am I that you would think about me? Why? Because the reality is that when you know that your eternity is settled, when you know that the wrath of God is no longer on you, then you have a confidence to say, I have joy in Christ no matter what may come. The more we see our sin for what it is, the more we see our weakness for what it is, the greater gratitude for God's grace to break through and to save you and me. From you and me. Amen. Joy is the benchmark of our salvation, friends. And that's why the next point is, is this, that we see is that joy is born of the Spirit. Joy is born of the Spirit. When the angels announced the coming of Christ in, in Luke chapter 1, and if you have your Bibles, if you want, you can turn there. It will be on the screen. Uh, but when they came and announced the birth of Christ, they said they were bringing good news, which is uh, translated the gospel. And it was good news of great what? Joy. It says this in verse 30, Luke 1. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Let's just stop there for a minute. This girl is 14 or 15 years old. And the angel of the Lord says, do not be afraid. Just, just put yourself in Mary's shoes as we're reading. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign in the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, the obvious question, right, that you and I probably would think as well, how can this be? I'm still a virgin. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And her response to this is incredible. 
It's, it's, it's one of my very favorite passages in all of scripture. And the reason, and I'm going to read it here, but the reason I love this passage is because Mary's faith gives us a demonstration of what it means that the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. Notice, and I'll read it here in a minute. Notice in Luke 1.46, was Jesus born yet? Before anything, before this, the outcome came, this is what she said. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Done great things for me, but he's not born yet. Mary recognizes that under the banner of the sovereignty of God, what God promises he will do. Amen? And it leads her to praise. And I imagine Psalm 16 came true. Psalm 16 says that in the fullness, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. We're not talking about a a kind of big smile, hey, Brother Bill, kind of joy, are we? Not this sort of manufactured church joy that sometimes we come in with, right? Yelling at the kids in the car and then come in, Brother Bill, what's up, man? No. We're talking about a joy that only comes from being born of the Spirit of God. Romans 14 says, uh, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of the righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. First Thessalonians, Paul says in verse 6, chapter 1, and you became imitators for us of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, much trial, much crisis, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that your joy may be in, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, it's not a matter of fleeting emotions or moments or happiness. It's not a matter of those things, it says. But here's what, and here's really what I hope we we walk away with a good understanding of, is that happiness is an emotion tied to circumstances and outcomes, but joy is gratitude and anticipation born of the Spirit, rooted in grace, and untouched by circumstances. Happiness is different than joy in some pretty fundamental ways, because you can put joy up against the hardest things in life. You can put joy up against cancer, and you come out untouched. But you put happiness up against cancer, up against the email, up against the call, and you're shaken to the core. Joy is a root. Happiness is the leaf. One is dictated by seasons. The other is fully planted. Joy is a root. Happiness is a leaf. One is fully 
planted. And that leads us to the last thing about joy, that joy is rooted in grace. Joy is rooted in grace. If you're familiar with scripture in Acts 5, uh, chapter 5, toward the end of the chapter, the apostles um, were arrested and it says that they were beaten under charges of what? Of proclaiming the name of Jesus. And it says this in in, uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now quick, in Acts chapter 5, uh, they're proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. The council brings them in and, and they give them a chance of trial, but then they just throw it away and said, you guys have with them. Really what they're saying is you can beat them now. And so they're beaten for proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. And it says that they came out of the presence of the council. What? rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be counted for dishonor for the name. And then it says in Hebrews 12, 2, I love this passage. Looking, have you guys heard this one? Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I bring this up because there is a kind of joy that can take on a cross and simultaneously have joy that causes you to endure. Sam Storm says it this way, that joy is, necessarily, is not necessarily the absence of suffering, it is the presence of God. Now I understand in a room this size that some of you are currently facing challenges there's loss, there's uncertain future. It's, a, it's, it's, it's moments like these, we really need a stabilizing joy that anchors us not in some abstract idea about God or, con- but con- or concepts, but firmly rooted in the person of Jesus. Many of you are familiar with my, my story and mental health, and, and I won't share a ton here, but I was facing for, for three years in my early 20s, facing um, in late teens, early 20s, facing some severe depression. Um, depression that was so bad that I, um, I, I really didn't see a way out. Um, and I, I wanted to end things. Um, it came to mind. And I remember night after night, I mean, almost like clockwork, I'd wake up. Maybe some of you have experienced this as well. I'd wake up and 2 a.m. comes, 3 a.m. comes, and I'm still awake, or I just wake up again, and I can't fall back asleep. And I remember those nights of rolling out of bed and just getting on my knees, and it was the 90s, so we had carpet, so I was good. Getting on my knees and raising up weak, feeble hands. This might date me, but I just remember the time of lifting my hands and just repeating this the song of the night that the Lord gave me, which was a popular song at the time, How Great Is Our God. Just over and over, how great is our God. How great is our God. I know what it's like to have moments where it's, the window is so foggy. But I've also seen the joy of the Lord 
lift up my weak, feeble hands and lead me to, to sing a song in the night. Literally, it was life or death for me. See, spiritual joy is the steadfast belief that God is sovereign and in control of life's events and the well-being of believers for his glory. It is, it is not determined by chance or circumstances, but rather by this profound, enduring confidence that despite, despite what is coming my way, I can say it is well with my soul. Friends, I don't think we say that enough, do we? When the crisis hits, what are we saying? I got to do what? I got to do this? I got to do that? What if we got to this posture of it when it hits to say, it is well with my soul? And it's not just a I'm throwing things away and lazy kind of posture. It is just saying in declaration along with David in sort of this inclusio uh, kind of manner is saying in a bookend, yeah, in the middle, I'm weak, I'm feeble. I got this situation. I'm surrounded by all sides, but it is well with my soul. And I can say, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Joy has a, has a future shape to it as well. And what it's meant to do is bring us to a place of advent. And I love what one of my great heroes in the faith says, Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, that the first advent is meant to make you long for the second advent. Our celebrations of joy this Christmas are only a kind of reverberating echo of the joy that we will know in the future when at last we come face to face with Jesus. The shape of our joy takes on a, a, a end times kind of manner. The shape of our joy is a future shape. And it says that come what may, I can have joy in the Lord. I can have joy knowing that my sins are forgiven. I can have joy knowing that 10,000 years from now, I'm going to be in the presence of Almighty God in my perfected body. And there will be no more tears. There will be no more shame. There will be no more depression. There will be no more wondering where the check's going to come from tomorrow or how's this going to end up or this is going to be a tough conversation. There will be no more of that. But 10,000 years from now, I can say it is well with my soul. So come what may, I know that the joy that I have in Christ is going to be untouched by the world. Amen? That's the kind of joy that God has given for you and for me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your great mercy and your great grace. We thank you for the, the joy that you've invited us into, Lord the joy that has existed within the triune God for eternity past and still to this day, the joy that we get to share in because of Christ. Lord, forgive us for our weak understanding of this. Would you increase our faith and bring us to a place of joy that is untouched by the world, rooted in grace. And give us, Lord, this year more gratitude more gratitude for you, more gratitude for what you've done, more gratitude for each other so that our joy may be full. So, Father, we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.